Welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sports History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. In the last podcast, you might have heard uh, Raf Nicholson interviewing me, Geoffrey Levitt, about my career as a historian. But this week, it's Raf who is the focus of the podcast, and in particular, the paper that she gave shortly after that interview at the Institute, the subject of which was uh, the revolution in the governance of women's sport in the UK in the 1980s and 90s. And this was the first in a series of papers that we'll be hosting at the Institute in the 2019-2020 academic year. And you can come along to the next one. The next seminar will be on the 4th of November with previous podcast guest Helena Byrne, and she'll be talking about women's soccer in Ireland and its development through the 20th and 21st centuries. The full details of the seminar can be found on the podcast homepage and at the IHR's website, history.ac.uk. So if you're free at six o'clock on Monday the 4th of November and you're interested in sport history, why not come along? Uh, The Institute is open to everybody. But now let's listen in as Raf tells us how getting more funding was definitely a mixed blessing for women's sport in the UK in the 1990s. In the course of 10 years between 1990 and 2000, the landscape of British sport changed fundamentally. Almost all women's sports that had previously been administered separately to their male counterparts merged with the men's governing body. So there's a list here of um, sports which merged. 1989, squash were kind of the pioneers. Um, 1992, both football and athletics merged. 1996, lacrosse merged. And 1998, both cricket and hockey merged. My current research project focuses on this 10-year period and the aim is to do two things. First of all, to explain why did these mergers happen um, and assess the impacts on UK sport as a whole, but also to do something a bit, um, a bit deeper than that and actually provide a historical analysis of the 1990s as a period of British history. Um, about which not very much has been written, certainly by sports historians, and we don't really have a narrative of the 90s as a period of British history. So it's a big challenge, but one that I hope to try and address. And the research has become possible partly due to the new availability of archival material relating to these women's sports, including the Women's Football Association archive at the British Library, the Women's Cricket Association archive at Lords, the Women's Amateur Athletics Association archive at the University of Birmingham, the Women's Hockey Association Archive at the University of Bath and the Women's Lacrosse Association Archive at the Women's Library at LSE. But as well as examining this archival material, the aim is also to carry out oral history interviews with those who are involved in the mergers. In today's paper, I'll be sharing with you some initial findings from the project focused around three key themes. Firstly, looking at the context and the historical development of women's sport, Secondly, examining the decision to merge. And thirdly, um, a kind of preliminary assessment of the impact of the mergers. And I'll be focusing mainly on the three sports which I've so far examined in greatest detail, um, which are cricket, hockey and football. So just to start off with a little bit of context, at its heart, this is a project about sport governance. There's an extensive sociological literature on issues of gender and sport governance which is in general agreement that women are hugely underrepresented in the management of sport. For example, 
A 2016 study by Adriance found that globally men occupy 89.2% of board chair positions and 83.7% of chief executive positions in sport. Eric Anderson, in a 2009 article, argues that sport is a masculine institution. Sport was, quote, designed with the political project of promoting men's heteromasculine domination, and it therefore recruits workers from within its own gendered sporting fields. However, much of this literature is totally ahistorical, and it assumes that these problems have always been there. In fact, until 1990, many women's sports within England were governed entirely by women. The historical development of women's sport in England ensured that it was in most cases governed separately to men's sport. The earliest governing body of women's team sport, the All England Women's Hockey Association, was formed in 1895. Initially, the women who formed the AEWHA applied for affiliation to the Men's Hockey Association, but when their application for membership was rejected, they established the principle that, quote, no man may hold executive office. The constitutions of the Ladies Lacrosse Association, formed in 1912, and the Women's Cricket Association, formed in 1926, were based on that of the Women's Hockey Association. Right up until the 1990s, these organisations remained ones in which no man was permitted to either take office or to become a full member. Football is a special case because the FA's ban on women's football, instituted in 1921, made it very difficult for those participating in the sport to set up their own governing body. This was not achieved until 1969, when the Women's Football Association was set up. When the WFA's first officers were elected in 1970, three of them were women, including the first chairman, Patricia Dunn, and two were men. UEFA met in late 1971 and decided to take control of women's football, but the national associations were permitted to choose how they would achieve this control. As a consequence, the Football Association in England announced that it would lift its ban on women's football and recognise the WFA as the sole governing body of women's football in England at the present time. A joint consultative committee between the FA and the WFA was formed to discuss matters of mutual interest. However, as, a, as the quote from the 1972 FA Minutes on the screen suggests, um, quote, it was emphasised by the chairman that the FA had no wish to intervene in the day-to-day -day running of the WFA. The FA would have no control over the finances of the WFA and would not give financial assistance. So that's the trade-off. They won't have control over the day-to-day -day running, but they equally won't help them financially. Until the 1990s then, women's football was for all intents and purposes run as a separate sport by a separate governing body. By the last ever Women's Football Association AGM, held in December 1992, 14 of the 22 directors of the WFA were female. Their organisational independence was highly prized by those running women's sport, and amongst the membership and many of the officers there was consistent resistance to this idea of merging with the governing bodies of men's sport. So the first quote on the screen is from um, the Women's Lacrosse Association in September 1985, and this is addressed to the Sports Council. The Women's Lacrosse Association, it says, encourages communication with the English Lacrosse Union um, at every level of the game. It's recognised by the two bodies, however, that the men's and women's sports are so entirely different, both in the nature of the game and the administrative structure, that any attempts to merge would be problematic. 
And the second quote on the screen is from a Women's Cricket Association Executive Committee meeting of 1974. They're discussing their future role with the Men's National Cricket Association, who were the governing body at that time of uh, recreational men's cricket in England. And it says, It was agreed the Women's Cricket Association should continue to work with the NCA as closely as possible, as there was a very happy relationship at the moment, but the WCA must keep its own identity. Turning to football... Between 1989 and 1992, the Women's Football Association were in talks with the FA about the possibility of the FA taking on increased responsibility for some aspects of the running of the women's game. However, those in the WFA, in the WFA envisaged that they would remain in existence and that the FA's remit over women's football would therefore be limited. So this memo from 1990 states that the FA is offering to take on responsibility for development, for the international programme and for the WFA Cup. Um, and the WFA say, we believe that what they're proposing makes sense. Um, the changes would raise our profile and status, put women's football at the heart of the game's development, and remove some of the organisational headaches, um, help us get sponsorship, um, but yet allow us, quote, to retain our independence in the areas which matter. In 1992, a questionnaire was circulated to all women's football clubs asking for their opinions on the idea of the FA offering help and guidance in these areas of women's football governance. 30 clubs responded to the questionnaire and there are some of the comments um, from responses to the questionnaire on the screen. Um, so the suggestion is that some of these clubs were wary of committing ourselves, um, worried about the drawbacks. One club said assistance only from the FA not take it over. Yes, in favour, but restrictions should be placed on the FA as to how far they can go with the competition. Reluctant for the FA competitions department getting too involved in the administration of the WFA Cup in case the WFA lost ownership and control altogether. So there's kind of resistance in, within women's football at the grassroots, at club level, to this idea of the FA taking over and the WFA not existing anymore. Despite this, in the majority of cases... The governing bodies of women's sport vote in favour of merging. This is um, a postal ballot form from the All England Women's Hockey Association postal ballot that was held um, in, 1997, uh, in 1996. Um, so this was sent um, to all members of the AEWHA and they could vote um, yes or no to the proposal that a new association would be formed jointly by men and women to be the single national governing body for hockey in England with effect from the 1st of June 1997. Um, and the result of this vote, um, 602 of 644 votes cast were in favour of the merger. So that's 93.5% in favour. Similarly, um, at the Extraordinary General Meeting of the Women's Cricket Association held in March 1998, 97 out of 128 delegates who attended the meeting voted in favour of dissolving the WCA. So that's 76%. Again, football is a bit different here. Um, the WFA AGM, where the merger proposal was being discussed, which took place in December 1992, actually ended up being adjourned. And by the time it was reassembled in early 1993, the process had already become a fait accompli. So um, this is a quote from the minutes of that AGM, that resumed AGM in February 1993. Um, 
The members present, it says, showed concern over the content of the chairman's annual report to the members and stated they were concerned that the FA were taking over full control of the women's game. Mr Marlowe informed the members that in the 1970s FIFA had issued a directive which stated that all football associations should control women's football. The FA at that time decided to allow the women's FA to have control of its own sport. However, at any time, the FA could have taken back the control. They didn't, but now they've decided to do so. So there appears to have been an acquiescence on behalf of WFA Secretary David Marlowe and the rest of the officers of the WFA that a merger was by this point inevitable. Similarly, Barbara Daniels and Sharon Baton, the Executive Director and the Chairman of the Women's Cricket Association during the merger period, also accepted the inevitability of the merger by 1997 and spent months touring the country and campaigning in favour of the dissolution of the WCA in the lead-up to the crucial Extraordinary General Meeting. So, why did members and officers end up being in favour of mergers when previously they'd been opposed? Well, it's all about this crucial 1993 UK Sports Council's new policy document, Women and Sport. This new policy document, issued in 1993, recommended that all national governing bodies of sport establish a single governing body. This was part of a broader move by the Sports Council towards encouraging governing bodies of sport to fund, facilitate and encourage female participation in a range of sports. However, as feminist scholars like Jennifer Hargreaves have pointed out, this new policy was based on a liberal feminist strategy and did not result in a radical rethink of women's position within sport. Male sporting organisations were reluctant to advocate changes which would disrupt the current structures of their sports. Therefore, the impact of the Sports Council policy in practice was to place pressure on women's sporting organisations to dissolve themselves and go in with the men in order to continue receiving funding from the Sports Council. An example of how pressure from the Sports Council played out in practice can be found in the WFA minutes. This is from the WFA officers meeting 23rd of November 1991. Mr Stern reported that the Secretary and himself had met with Mr Joe Patton from the Sports Council to discuss the Association's financial situation. Mr Patton stated that the Sports Council would like to see the WFA develop a closer working relationship with the FA on the three areas previously discussed with the Sports Council. Mr Stern, on behalf of the WFA, assured him that discussions with the FA had been resumed and that a meeting between the WFA officers and the FA had been arranged for the 5th of December. Women's sports still found it extremely difficult to find sponsorship in the 1980s and 1990s, so they were therefore heavily dependent on grant aid from the Sports Council, which had, since the 1960s, been distributing financial assistance to governing bodies of sport within England. Here's some examples of the financial situations um, and the consequent financial pressure that various women's sports were facing um, by the late 80s and the early 90s. By 1987, the Women's Lacrosse Association was running a £4,000 deficit, despite an annual grant from the Sports Council of £53,500. By 1993, the Women's Hockey Association was reliant on the Sports Council for 50% of its income, receiving a total grant of £172,000. By 1993, the Women's Football Association's financial position was untenable, with substantial debts having been accrued. The debts were probably somewhere in the region of 30 k In order to function, 
the WFA were relying on a sports council grant of £70,000 and the Football Trust grant of £45,000 to fund their annual expenses. The Women's Cricket Association were nearly bankrupted by hosting the 1993 World Cup at home and failed to find sponsors for any subsequent international series. This placed intense pressure on them to push ahead with a full merger or risk going bankrupt. By 1998, the WCA president Norma Isaab was writing of the merger that, quote, realistically, if we want women's cricket to remain, we have no option as the Sports Council funds will only be available to one governing body for cricket. The feeling that by the time of the WCA's extraordinary general meeting in 1998, there was no option but to vote in favour of a merger is borne out when examining oral histories of the process. And these are interviews that I've already conducted as part of my PhD. Um, so this is a quote from my interview with Cathy Mowat, who says, It was all much presented as a fait accompli. I could see that it was going to be very damaging for women's cricket, but that was the way things were going if we wanted any sort of funding. Um, and I'm now going to play you a clip from one of my interviews. Um, this is Pat and Steve Siddiffin, who are a married couple and both very involved in women's cricket. So are you, were you in favour of the decision to merge or to join with the ECB? No, no, but if it meant that we had funding and an acceptance that we could play cricket and were possibly worth well, it's the ECB earns over, women over a barrel, you might say, in the fact that say, if we don't, if we don't fund, if you join us, you get the funding, but if you want to run us a separate thing, we don't give you any. No. <laughs> so no, there, there was, there was a, a sort of uh, fate accompli. Yeah. Much happier with it being WCA. It's actually an interesting generational difference in how um, different female cricketers of different ages view the merger. Um, so alongside Pat and Steve, I also interviewed their daughter, Jan, um, who's still a women's cricket coach in Somerset. So here's Jan speaking at, um, alongside her mum, Pat. No, I thought with WCA, by the time they'd sorted themselves out, we wouldn't exist. I really thought they were ECB were just going to get us out of the way, and any finance that might have come our way would be theirs. The problem is it, it was the finance that we sort of, it was, with the amount of work they did and the amount of sponsorship they had, the finance that WC had was minuscule. Mm. And yet it was hard earned, you know, it was mm. hard fought for. But it was it was minuscule in comparison to the you know the turnover of, of the NCA and the what was because in '97 is when the ECB was formed with the uh, county boards and the NCA. Uh, it was a difficult because I was 61 then, you know, which makes it difficult. And you think, well, they wouldn't respect me anyway because I'm not a current player, but I did score right the way through. Yeah. So I had, you know, there was a lot of respect actually for I think the older people. I think the the, um, the problem was is that um, it's uh, a lot of these women and girls, girls, you know, they've just been poo pooed by a lot of male, you know, showness because they just weren't taken seriously, and that's what they would force against all the time. 
and then to hand it over to all these men. Yeah, which essentially it, well, it you is know, now basically. To actually, they've been working and working and working to prove a point that girls can play cricket, and I think that's the big worry. But then, you know, and I'll see, and that's hopefully the reassurance that was given to Barbara Daniels, who was the uh, in charge of everything, the, the women's game at the time, that uh, this would, you know, this would carry on. And obviously, it was a good choice. But it had to be debated because it could have, you know, it could have easily gone. But then obviously, government, ultimately Sport England gets its government money, um, wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't have uh, happened if, uh, you know, they hadn't negotiated what they wanted. So I guess what Jan's kind of saying there is she's saying that she understands um, why there was a lot of opposition within the WCA to the merger, but she ultimately accepts that she feels that it was for the good of the game in the long term. Janet Bitmead, um, another one of my interviewees who was aged 64 at the time of our interview, also spoke about the differences between the way in which her generation and the younger players at her club view the merger. So were you at those merger meetings? Oh yes, I went to the merger meetings, yes. So what kind of issues were being discussed? Well, I suppose they felt, you know, were they just sort of wanting to take us over so they had a, the women's side, you know, because so much is involved if you have a women's part, you get more grants and things like that. And that we would be sort of lost. That's why the associates began, because there was no collective base for people to keep in touch. Like if when you had the WCA, you became a member of the WCA and could go to their AGMs, which always were lords. So that was an outing in itself. We used to have it as, in my, uh, well, when it was still about, we used to go as a club and then go for tea and coffee afterwards in one of the posh hotels around St. John's Wood. So it was a, it was a club outing. But also you had a say at how the association ran, you elected their officers, uh, their policies and all that. So you were very much involved. When the, it was decided with the ECB, you knew that instantly there wasn't going to be that involvement because there couldn't be. You know, you couldn't have all these 30 or 40 women coming along and saying, well, we want this and we want that. It's done by the tears of organisation. So you knew it would disappear, but you hoped they wouldn't abandon us. But, um, you know, from the youngsters' point of view, they've not known any different. So therefore, they see it as the ECB are offering women's cricket a lot. Why did the merger go ahead if there were these concerns about the ECB abandoning women's cricket? Well, I think they thought probably in the long run that was the way we had to go in order to get funding. So overall, um, from these interviews, there's a real sense that at the time when the merger with the ECB occurred, the only reason that the WCA members voted in favour of it was because they felt that there was no other choice, that merging was a fait accompli before the merger negotiations even started. Within women's football, the fait accompli was actually explicit. In July 1992, the FA proposed to the Sports Council that they would take over direct responsibility for the area of development of women's football. Therefore, they requested that the, sport, the Sports Council should pay the grant aid directly into the FA's own accounts 
and the FA would then distribute it to women's football as they saw fit. This duly occurred, and as we've seen, by the reconvened AGM in February 1993, the officials of the WCA therefore reported that there was really no choice but for their association to seize control of women's football. They'd already had the financial rug pulled out from under them. Lastly, I want to think a little bit about the impact of the mergers. And the aim of this project is to create a typology according to the differing impact on different sports. Um, it does appear that the experience of the merger process and its impact varied somewhat depending on the numerical and financial strength of the women's sport in question. So you've got a bit of a divide um, between male-dominated sports like football and cricket and then later rugby um, and female-dominated sports like hockey and lacrosse. Um, so some of the common features um, for male-dominated sports, um, promises made at the time of the merger are broken. Um, what emerges from the merger is a very unequal governance structure, which is heavily weighted in favour of existing men's representatives. Um, there's a lot of local level resistance um, to acceptance of women's sport by um, existing men's structures. Um, and there's this real sense of the women having to fit in with existing governance structures, existing leagues, existing rules. Um, versus, I think, um, sports like hockey and lacrosse, from what I can see, get it a bit more right. Um, so there are gender ratios um, that are instituted at the point of the merger. Um, a fairer governance structure generally appears. Um, and often, um, and specifically thinking about women's hockey, a bespoke governing body is actually created from the men's and the women's hockey associations. Um, so it isn't about the women fitting in with the men, it's something completely new, um, which is quite um, important sort of symbolically. Um, um, so in terms of broken promises, um, the context I know best is cricket. Um, Sharon Baton and Barbara Daniels were promised a seat on the ECB board. This never transpired. From 1998 until 2010, no women at all sat on the ECB board. Instead, a women's cricket advisory group was set up, but didn't have any access to the main board or to the ECB's audit committee, and therefore had in practice only very limited influence over the funding, the publicity and the resources that were devoted to women's cricket. Similarly, with women's football, the plan after the dissolution of the WFA was for clubs and leagues to belong to a newly created organisation, the Women's Football Alliance. And there would also be an FA committee for women's football comprising of representatives from women's football and from the FA Council. However, this women's committee quickly became dominated by top FA administrators and county FA men. And the newly appointed women's football coordinate, coordinator didn't really have very much autonomy. Her decisions had to be agreed by both her male line manager and the full FA Council committee. In terms of local resistance, um, again, you see this very much within both cricket and football. So this is from a report of the Women's Cricket Advisory Group in 2000, um, which says that um, the leader of that had conducted a survey of the men's counties to find out the extent to which women's cricket had been included in the board structure at county level. Um, it's fair to say the picture was mixed. Some counties had managed to secure a seat for women's cricket at the full board. Others were represented at the Recreational Cricket Committee, while some were far from integration. And there really still is this sense today in the contemporary, uh, in contemporary women's cricket that, um, that the situation massively varies from county to county as to how women's cricket is treated. Um, 
When one ECB employee turned up at a county in the early 2000s and was introduced as the coordinator of women's and girls cricket, um, she said to me in in an oral history interview that she was asked, are you here to show us how to make the tea? Um, Similarly, within women's football, women's clubs and leagues were expected to affiliate to their local county men's FA, but there wasn't any official agreement as to how women's football would be represented on these county FA committees. And in fact, what transpired was a huge amount of resistance to female representation. And that resistance was that that resistance was actually predicted before the merger. So this is from a letter to Pat Smith at the FA dated 5th of February 1993, talking about um, the idea that women's football should have representatives um, at at county association level. Uh, It's kind of saying we could put a rule in place that says um, that that should happen, um, but, quote, however, as we discussed, this would be politically sensitive and would probably create an adverse reaction. So they don't bother to do that. And then obviously what happens is that there is this resistance at local level. Um, By contrast, um, this is a quote from the constitution of the um, newly formed England Hockey Association, which is created from the merger between the women's and the men's hockey associations. Um, And there's really this sense in which a fairer governance structure is written into the constitution from the start. Um, A 50% gender ratio on the new council of the England Hockey Association, Hockey Association is instituted. Um, women's and men's county, regional and clubs have one vote each. Um, and additionally, it was agreed that the president and the vice president would rotate between being male and female. And the first president of the new England Hockey Association was to be a woman. However, um, having said all that, there are some commonalities, I think, across lots of different sports. Um, there's this real feeling of disempowerment um, since the merger um, that kind of these women's sports have something as something has changed and not necessary for the better. Um, this is just a quote that I pulled out from a particular women's cricket club minute book from 2004, which is six years after the merger. Uh, it says the ECB couldn't organise a piss up in a brewery and we should get rid of ECB. Um, and I think that's really telling of how some of these clubs really feel abandoned. Um, There's also a feeling that the history of these sports has been forgotten. This is a quote from the uh, Women's Football Association History website, which says, Even though we're now well into the 21st century, the WFA hardly merits a mention on the FA website, and there's been no record of the successes of the first official England national team or the beginnings of the National Cup competition. Um, And the final point is about the way in which people now talk about the merger. The merger processes um, and this is something I hope to bring out in oral history interviews. Um, I'm, I'm kind of trying to refer to them as mergers because that's what often um, they were they were referred to officially um, when when the when the process happens um, but I think you know there's there's often um, people talking about them as more like takeovers um, in, in the business sense um, and other language that suggests that the process both at the time and in retrospect isn't seen as an equitable one. Uh, So in conclusion, um, the research is still at a very early stage. I want to look in great depth at the archival material and I also want to conduct more oral histories with those who are involved in the merger processes to gain a greater understanding of what took place. Um, However, what does seem apparent is that these mergers, as I've termed them, effectively became takeovers, whereby female administrators were forced to cede governance of their sports to male-run bodies whose priority and focus remained, and still remains, men's sport. Um, On the slide now, 
um, are the gender makeup of the various governing bodies of the sports that I've mentioned. I won't go through the whole list, but basically women are still massively outnumbered. And men also now monopolise coaching and officiating positions in all these sports. In the context of this, the project has immense contemporary resonance for all national governing bodies of sport. As of April 2017, a new code of sports governance has been introduced by UK Sport, with all sports required to have 30% of their boards made up by women. The lack of gender diversity at the top levels of sport remains a huge issue. The ultimate aim of this project, then, is to help enhance our understanding of how women were systematically eliminated from sports governance in the 1990s, which should assist in understanding the contemporary situation and shed light onto how national governing bodies of sport might now seek to address diversity issues. Thank you. Well, thanks to Raf for a great paper, and I'm really looking forward to reading the results of her research as she uh, produces it um, in due course. And thanks also to Mrs. Woof. You might have heard Mrs. Woof in the background. She's been helping me uh, do the intro and the outro to this podcast this week as I'm sitting in my kitchen. Um, but as I said at the beginning of the podcast, if you want to come along to one of the seminars, they are, they are open to everybody. Um, and follow us on our Twitter account to find out the details as well. The Twitter account is BritSportHissSock. Um, on Twitter is a very catchy uh, Twitter handle, but if you just look for BSSH on there, we'll come up and you can find the details uh, for the future seminars that we'll be tweeting about on there. You can also look at our website, which is sportsinhistory.org, so that's much easier to, uh, to remember. Um, so yeah, until next time, it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Mrs. Wolf. Goodbye. Thank you.